Okay, we've, uh, we began uh, a series uh, some weeks ago on uh, the subject of angels, and um, um, we wanted to, uh, to give a chance for anything that we didn't cover or anything that we weren't clear on, uh, questions to, to come up and, and uh, things like that, and take care of those. So tonight we're going to have a question and answer series or um, message service on uh, uh, regarding angels. And uh, the first, uh, the first question. Might as well get this out of the way. Um, do you think signing Josh Hamilton was a good move in light of his lackluster offensive performance this last season, or this present season? Well, that's not the Angels we're talking about. But uh, thanks for your concern, whoever that was. Uh, we've had uh, several questions come in over the um, uh, the course of the week and and uh, uh, by email, and then we got some others uh, this evening and uh, as people came in so we'll we'll try to handle those as we can uh, the first uh, The first question I want to deal with is uh, um, kind of one that that'll be a recurring thing uh, there are um, There are things that we casually speak of regarding angels and kind of um, well, I hate to say flippant, but I'm, I don't know any other way to say it, and I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. Um, my father-in-law asked me uh, a couple of days ago, how do we know angels have wings? And uh, we just kind of casually assume that all angels have wings, and, and there are certain things that the Bible says. For example, we know that, uh, uh, that the cherubim are spoken of in several places in Scripture as having wings. They're the ones that um, uh, cover the mercy seat the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It talks about how their wings were folded and the mercy seat is between their wings. Solomon, in building the temple, uh, built two um, cherubim. The Bible identifies them as cherubim that were 10 cubits high. That depends on the size of the cubit. That could be anywhere from 15 to 18 feet tall. And um, um, it says that one stretched from one wall to the other wall. The wings stretched from one wall to the other wall. So uh, not only were they, they tall... He had the wings spread out in such a way that it was, uh, uh, it, it fit the tabernacle itself. Also, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 in uh, verse 2 tells us about, uh, Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up. And, he, and apparently Isaiah saw him in the throne room. And he identifies the, uh, the seraphim, another class or type of angels that were around God's throne. And he said that the seraphim had six wings. Two of the wings covered his face, two of the wings covered his body, and two of the wings covered his legs. And so apparently these wings were kind of folded over, at least when he saw them. I don't know what the purpose of the, of the wings altogether is, but uh, the, he, he, he saw them with the wings covering them over. Ezekiel saw, was called, uh, saw the presence of God, saw the throne room of God, and he speaks of four beasts around the throne. And Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 says that these four beasts have six wings. So they, he may have seen the seraphim too, they just aren't identified by name. The Bible tells us in uh, uh, in Revelation that, uh, that that there are angels that fly through the air and preach the gospel. Well, you, that's certainly a different uh, different work. That's uh, not anything that happens nowadays. The Bible says that God has uh, delivered the foolishness of preaching into the hands of men, not angels. And you remember in Acts chapter ten when Cornelius had the angel appear to him. The angel didn't preach the gospel to him. He told him to send for Peter to find out about Jesus. And so in in the the Dispensation after the the, uh, the church age, apparently angels take a, a much more active or should we say visible uh, role in uh, in a lot of things. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter ten, it speaks of the cherubim, and it says the sound of their wings was as the voice of God. 
And it's speaking of uh, thundering through the heavens and, and that type of stuff. But right on the other hand, the Bible says in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, it says, be careful, uh, be not forgetful to uh, entertain strangers. For some have uh, entertained angels unawares. Now, folks, I'm thinking that the wings would be a tip off. So obviously not all angels have wings. There may be different angels uh, that, uh, that have different uh, functions and different purposes in, the, in the, the kingdom of God or in God's um, operations in his system. We don't know, but we would have to assume that not all angels would have wings. And that brings us to another question. I'll kind of tie this in together. My angel question is this. Are there angels that come to test us? I'm thinking of the angels that went into Sodom and Gomorrah to see if, if there were ten righteous men. Genesis chapter 18 tells a story about this. It says that um, in the first verse of chapter 18, it says, And the Lord appeared unto him, speaking of Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. And then he makes a, a meal. He makes a feast for, uh, for the Lord and, and these two angels that are with him. Now, Abraham obviously recognizes that there's something significant about him. Um, whether it's he recognizes the Lord, and, uh, and I think that, uh, that this would certainly be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I think that a lot of times we're, um, in my opinion, now this is just my opinion, I can't prove it for sure, but, uh, but there's no way to disprove it either. I think every time that the Bible speaks of God appearing to somebody in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. Because Jesus is the Word. And every time God appeared in the Old Testament, it was to deliver the Word. And so, as near as I can tell, that's the work or the function of Jesus, both Old Testament and New Testament, I can't see why God would be the one appearing if, 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 if it would seem to me that if God's the one appearing in the Old Testament, then he's taking over Jesus' work and Jesus' function. Well, that's not the way God works. If he commissions you to something, he equips you for it and then lets you do it. So I think this is Jesus that's appearing to him and the two men that are with him, whether there was something spectacular about them that Abraham recognized or just the fact that somebody was with Jesus, that would make you pretty special. But then it tells about how the Lord uh, sends the two angels forward. They're going to execute judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, um, and the Lord speaks to Abraham. It says uh, very specifically in verse 17, the Lord said, well, I, we'll back up to verse 16. It says, and the men, the two men that were with him, rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom and Abraham, went with them to bring them on the way. In other words, he walked out with them for a little ways. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And so God starts talking to him. The Lord starts talking to him about executing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he does, Abraham starts, uh, uh, well, let, let's just pick up in verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is very is great and because their sin is very grievous. Now, folks, um, I know this is a touchy subject with a lot of people. It's not with me. I know it's controversial in a lot of, in a lot of circumstances, in a lot of circles. It's not with me because God never changes. If homosexuality was a sin in the Old Testament, homosexuality is a sin in the New Testament. I don't know what people want to argue about. The Bible says it's a sin. God said he judged the city because of it. And not only that, he said it's a very grievous sin. Now, that doesn't mean the people that are involved in homosexuality are people that God hates doesn't mean that he doesn't care about them. And it doesn't mean when we stand up and say homosexuality is a sin that we're against anybody. 
I'm not against anybody. But it doesn't change the fact that homosexuality is a sin. Now, I know there's a big push for gay marriage and, and homosexual rights and all that kind of stuff. I don't understand why. With all the genetic research and all the things that are done, you would think. I mean, we can figure out why somebody's eye color is blue instead of brown. We can figure out why their, their hair color is the color that it is. As far as chromosomes and genetics and stuff like that. If there was a homosexual gene, don't you think that I found it? They found the male-female genes. Now, I know that's always the argument. I was made this way. God made me this way. Well, then it couldn't be a very grievous sin. God wouldn't make somebody where they had a compulsion or no choice about something that he calls a very grievous sin. Now, you can call me bigot, racist, whatever you want to call me. I'm not against anybody. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I don't understand why we, why our modern society, and it's, it's pervading the young people. It's in the schools and it's pervasive where the young people are concerned. It is the, I don't know if you know this or not, but from the 30 and younger group in society, it is the number one issue. Gay marriage is the number one issue as far as what they consider to be important. How did we get there? Nevertheless, homosexuality is identified as a sin, which means it's a choice. Not a compulsion, not a genetic disposition or anything else. I want to know where is the adultery lobby in America? That's a choice, isn't it? Where are the adulterers and the adulteresses standing up saying that they need equal protection under the law? Why aren't they demanding some special privileges? It's the same thing. It's a sexual choice. Now, you may think I'm being flippant about this, but it's an honest question. This is the only thing that the Bible says about homosexuality. Now, some people will say, yeah, the Old Testament's archaic. It said to stone the homosexuals in the Old Covenant stuff. Well, it said to stone rebellious children in the Old Testament, too. Now, there's a reason for that. And it's not because God hates homosexuals. It's not because God hates children. It's because God knows that if you allow sin, it becomes pervasive throughout society. And so his attempt under people who could not be righteous... They had a promise of it, but could not be righteous. His attempt was to stop sin before it took root. And that's the only reason for it. God hasn't changed. God loves people now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God didn't love people less under the old covenant than he does now. And the Bible says very specifically that homosexuality is a very grievous sin. God said it himself. It is a very grievous sin. If it was then, it's still got to be now. So he goes further. And says, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which is coming to me. And if not, I will know. And that's when it says the men turned their face from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Abraham starts bargaining with God. He says, are you going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people in it? It wouldn't be right for you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God said, no, I won't destroy it for 50. He said, what about 45? No, I'll, I'll spare it for 45. What about 40? I'll spare it for 40. What about 30? I'll spare it for 30. What about 20? I'll spare it for 20. And then Abraham says, oh, Lord, don't be mad, but I'm going to speak one more time. What if you find 10 righteous in the city? Will you spare it then? And God said, I'll spare it for 10 righteous people. Then it tells us about how that the two men wind up, uh, go into Lot or go into um, the city of Sodom. 
And it tells us about how Lot saw them. He's sitting in the gate and he saw them and he uh, entreats them to come to his house. And you know how the men of the city find out that there were those men that were with him, strangers that were with him. And they come banging on the door and demanding that, uh, that Lot turns them over to the men of the city so they can have sex with them. Well, this goes back to angels having wings. It's obvious that, ain't, that these two guys didn't have wings because everybody would have recognized there's something different about them. So certainly not all angels at least appear with wings. There may be opportunities or it may be possible for angels to change their appearance depending on their assignment. We don't know that for sure, but uh, I guess it's a possibility. So anyway, it tells us about how that then God uh, takes Lot and his family and tries to deliver them. His wife turns back and looks at the city and turns into a pillar of salt. But he delivers Lot and his, uh, his daughters and uh, and destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Actually, there were five cities that he destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and uh, three other cities as well uh, that, that were in that uh, same region there in, uh, in Israel. Now, my point is this. God knew how many people, how many righteous people were in the city when Abraham was talking to him. Abraham could just as easily, just as easy. I, I guess Abraham assumed there were 50 righteous, or at least 10. You know, 50 must have been a, 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 an imaginable number, but by the time he got to 10, he thought, well, surely there's 10. He could have asked the Lord, is there any righteous in the city? And, and the Lord would have told him, I'm sure only Lot and his, and his daughters. God knew how many people there were there. So it's not that the angels were testing anything. It tells us, it gives us an example. Number one, of our place of authority with God in prayer. How much our covenant with him through Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham fulfilled in Jesus, how much we can play a part in what happens in this earth. But the angels just carried out the assignment. The angels carried out the assignment of if the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is as grievous as as the cries had come up to, to the Lord, then their job was to destroy the city. So in that sense... Uh, the angels would are, are sent to minister the will of God, the plan of God. And it's not the plan of God to ever test you. Life tests you. And honestly, every, every word, every scripture is a test as to whether or not we're going to put it in practice in our lives or something else that's contrary to the word. But no, the angels don't test us. That's not God's work. It's never going to be the angels' work either. Good question. Okay, let's go to another one now. Um... This is a question about 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. We're going to have to read this a little bit in context. It says, um, where do we want to start here? Let's start in verse 10. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. In other words, he's saying the prophets prophesied about what you have in Christ. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. In other words, they had a part of it. They saw a little piece, but they didn't have the full understanding that we have because it's now come. When it was testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom, meaning the prophets, it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel, unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven. In other words, he's saying, they spoke of what they had revealed to them, what the Lord revealed to them about the things that we now know of as part of the gospel. 
And then it concludes this, uh, this verse with a phrase about the angels. It says, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, the things that are spoken of are the things of the gospel. That's what the prophets prophesied about, not that they could have it, but that we would have it someday when Jesus fulfilled the covenant. So it says that the angels desire to look into the things of the gospel. In other words, you've got a better place with God through Jesus than they have by being created by God and even serving around the throne. Now, the Bible says that the angels excel in strength. They're stronger than we are from a physical standpoint, but they're not closer in relationship than we are. You are made higher than the angels. The Bible says that you will judge the angels. I don't think that means judge God's angels. I think that means judge the angels that rebelled against God with Satan. God's waiting for you and me to execute that judgment. We're going to be the ones that are going to execute God's plan, God's will, as far as judgment is concerned, upon them. Why in the world would God give us that place? Folks, I don't think we realize half maybe not even a tenth of what we have in Christ Jesus. The angels would rather be uh, in Christ and partake of the salvation you have than do the service of God around the throne. So that's what that's talking about. It's not talking about the, the rest of the question is, what does this mean? Does this mean that the angels desire to but are kept from looking into these things or that the angels desire to look into accomplishing these things for us? Well, I think there's an element of both of that, but they're looking into salvation. They desire to look into salvation. They'd rather have the salvation that, that you have than the place with God that they have because yours is a greater position. Okay, the next question. Here's a question regarding Exodus chapter 23. You might want to turn back there and um, remind yourself of of verse scripture we looked at for a couple of weeks. Exodus chapter 23, I think it's verses 20 and 21. Yeah, Exodus 23, verse 20, it says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, I'm reading from the King James, beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, in teaching on this, I made uh, made the statement that this can't be Jesus. If this language is accurate, this can't be Jesus. Because Jesus is all about pardoning your transgressions. That's his work, was to take away sin. But here it says the angel that the Lord is sending with you, or with Israel, not with you so much, but with Israel, is uh, is going to operate according to the words that you speak. Now, I made this statement earlier in the in the, the service, but I need to say it again. If the work of Jesus is to be the word of God to mankind, which it is, then this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus too. This is Jesus doing the talking. Well, Jesus wouldn't say, I'm going to send my angel if he's talking about himself, would he? That wouldn't make sense. Now, here's the question, and it's a good question. It says, um, the Dakes Bible says that it was Jesus, the angel is Jesus, based on the Septuagint translation. Dakes says the original text translated, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him, should read, for he should not withdraw himself from you, for my name is upon him. Is the Septuagint just wrong on this one? Uh, The statement is made that it makes such a big difference in this case, and I would agree. The Septuagint is the Greek translation from the Hebrew. Now, for us, unless you read Greek, 
The Septuagint has to be translated from the Greek to the English. So you've got Hebrew to Greek to English. Uh, you've got a three-step process, which there's nothing wrong with it. The Septuagint is, uh, is, in my opinion, a lot of times a better uh, second step than going straight from the Hebrew to the English. But in this case, the word, um, uh, I, I, I don't know how to say this other than just jump out here with it. I think Dake's wrong. And the reason for that is the Septuagint, the English translation of the Septuagint, says it this way, verse 21, Take heed to thyself and hearken to him, talking about the angel, and disobey him not, for he will not give way to thee, for my name is upon him. Now, this Hebrew word for pardon, this Hebrew word that's translated pardon in the King James, is the word that means to lift, as in take up or take away. The Hebrew word for transgression is revolt. Now, it doesn't make sense if the message is, Jesus, this is Jesus, the angel is Jesus, and he won't withdraw from you. He'll take away your sin. It's, it doesn't make sense that there would be a warning to say, take heed unto him and obey him and don't disobey him. If the message is, don't worry, he'll be with you all the time, why would there be a warning? Do you see the point? But if, on the other hand, this is Jesus saying, I'm sending an angel to accomplish, to carry out those things that I promised you. And remember, this is in relation to taking the promised land, taking possession of the promised land. He's saying the angel will help you take possession of the promised land. We've talked about the promised land of the Old Testament represents the blessings in Christ Jesus that we have now in the New Testament. Healing, prosperity, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and so forth. So if the angel was given to Israel in the Old Testament to bring them into the promised land, we already know that it's God's will for them to come into the promised land, but we already have an example also in Numbers chapter 13 of the Israelites not partaking of God's will because they spoke against God's word. Well, the way you disobey the angel is to speak against God's word. So it seems to me that they did exactly what he warned them not to do. But if this is Jesus and the message is he won't withdraw from you, well, I guess he was with them in the wilderness, but they sure didn't go into the promised land for the 40 years that they spent out there. So I think, I I don't know any other way to say it. I think Dake's wrong. I I don't see any other way around it. The language itself lends itself to think otherwise. So I don't think that, I think the Septuagint translation into the English is excellent. Let me read it again to you. Take heed to yourself and hearken unto him and disobey him not, for he will not give way to thee. He will not give way to thee. In other words, you say the wrong things and you take things out of his hands. He will not give way to thee, for my name is upon him. Well, one of the things about God is he he changes not. One of the things about God is that when he speaks, his word is eternal. Forever, O Lord, your word is established in heaven. Now, it's, I know it's a real popular thing for people to ignore the truth nowadays because it, it, it doesn't say what they want to hear. But it doesn't change the truth. You can make all kinds of excuses for the word in any area of life that you want to. I know as young people, we're really bad about this. We try to twist the word around and, and make it justify whatever we're doing. Well, you can try to justify yourself from the truth all you want to, but you can't change the truth. The truth is going to be true whether you live by it or not. Well, if the name of the Lord is with him, that's the standard that he's operating by. In other words, angels are bound. They don't get to make decisions on their own. You remember the angels that went to Sodom and Gomorrah were trying to hurry Lot and his family up. We can't destroy this place. We can't carry the will of God out upon this place until you get out of here. Why? Because they were commissioned to get Lot and his family out. 
So it's not like they, they stand around and say, well, I'm not sure. What am I going to do today? They do what they're commissioned to do. I think that's what that means. He will not give way to thee. In other words, he's got a specific job and he'll carry out, carry it out unless you will disobey by speaking against God's word, unless you provoke him. Amen. Okay. Can angels ever manifest themselves physically, especially in a crisis or in a dangerous situation? Well, yeah, we're looking at situations here in the scripture where they do. Abraham saw men. The Bible talks about don't forget to entertain strangers for some people have entertained angels unawares. Yeah, there are times where people where angels will manifest themselves physically. Absolutely. If they're not working in this physical realm, what good are they? Sometimes we need physical help. Now, one uh, one question that was asked. uh, Oh, here it is. How do the angels help in our healing once we have activated them by confessing the word about it? Turn with me over to John chapter five. Here's, um, um, well, in the interest of full disclosure, I can't build a doctrine on this because we only have one example that I know of where an angel had anything to do with healing. And that was where Jesus uh, ministered to the guy at the pool of Bethesda. And we don't even see the angel in operation. We just have a, a, a divinely inspired record of what the angel did. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, which means house of mercy, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel, why are they waiting for the, the water to move? For an angel went down at a certain season under the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Well, we certainly would accept from the Bible record, if this is true, if John wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. If this is true, then we, we know that God used angels to deliver healing in a sporadic sense. So that shows us a principle. That shows us a principle that God, at least on occasion, at least in this one instance, or in this one place, I say uh, one instance, I don't mean it happened one time. I mean, at least it happened in this one location. We don't know how often that it happened. Neither did they. And that's why they're waiting every day. Crippled people and sick people are waiting there every day looking for the water to move. Now, folks, moving water doesn't heal you. If moving water heals you, all you have to do is take a shower. What was it about moving water? Well, there's something supernatural about it. And everybody recognized that. Now, can we explain the supernatural aspect of it? I can't. It didn't say the water changed colors to show them what was happening. And when it says the moving of the water, I don't know what that means. Does that mean like you throw a pebble into the water and it makes ripples? Or does that mean, you know, churning? Does that mean the angel got in and started splashing around? I, I don't know. It just mentions when the, the angel went down and troubled the water. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know that they did either until it happened and they recognized it or, or you know, they uh, assumed, well, that must be what it is. But there was something about, there was something supernatural about the angel coming in contact with the water and then the sick coming in contact with the water after the angel had. I, I don't know uh, if this is a good way to say it or not, but uh, but I, I, I'm safe in, the, in in presenting the concept that when the angel went down and touched the water, it anointed the water and healing passed to whoever the first one in the water was. There was something that happened. Something transformed that water from regular water to healing water. 
Now, I don't have another example from the Bible to tell you. Here's how angels work where healing is concerned. I can give you testimonies. Some things I've witnessed myself about angels and healing. I know there was, uh, uh, there was a, there's a certain minister. He's in California, based out of California, and, and, uh, and God uses him in uh, some really strange ways, different, different ways. I mean, the, the type of ministry he has is very, very unusual. And, uh, and angels are involved in his ministry to a great degree. Now, when I say that, I have never seen an angel in his meeting. I've been in several of his meetings, but I've never seen an angel in his meeting. But I have been in meetings where he said, there's an angel there. And sometimes he said, he's got a new heart for somebody. And then I've seen the testimonies of people that, that were prayed for, said, well, that's me. I've got heart trouble or something like that. And then they go back to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you've got a new heart. Well, how do you explain that? I mean, that, if, if the guy didn't see an angel, that's a pretty good guess. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, there are a number of uh, stories I could tell you about the, the, uh, the operation of angels in his ministry where healing is concerned. There was uh, one guy that was uh, on a stretcher. He had broken his back, if I remember correctly. And he was on a stretcher and he, he was paralyzed from the, I think, from the neck down or maybe from the um, mid-chest down or something like that. Most of his body was paralyzed at least. And, uh, and so he was on a stretcher. And so they brought him in on this stretcher, and uh, uh, and he was off to the side. It was kind of a bigger meeting, so he's off to the side where some other folks in wheelchairs were at. And um, uh, and and this fellow kept walking over, kind of looking at him, and then he'd walk away for a little bit, and then he kept walking back. I mean, it was like he just kept being drawn over there where these folks were. And he said, "There's pointing to the guy on the stretcher," and he said, "There's an angel that's been standing by you for about twenty minutes now." He said, "He's here to bring you healing." Well, that sounds good. I mean, if I'm on the stretcher, that sounds like Great start, you know. And so he he just said that. He's here to heal you. And so he went back around of business. I mean, let God do his thing. I've got a message to preach. And so he goes about his business. And all of a sudden, this guy over there screams. And you looked over there, and everybody could see it. It was like somebody had picked this guy up by the shoulders. If he was wearing a, a shirt or something like that, picked him up by, the, by his collar like this and snapped him like you'd be straightening out of a bed sheet. I mean, you can't move like that. I don't care how athletic you are. You can't do what this guy did. And it was like, it really, it was like something picked him up, lifted him up off the stretcher and snapped him just like that. And by the time he settled back down on the stretcher, he was healed. He jumped up and started running around the room. The doctors had been there. He'd been brought in by an ambulance because the situation was so critical. He started running around the room. The doctors examined him on the spot. They said, well, we can't explain this. Well, again, if that wasn't an angel, that's a pretty good guess. What was it? So the question is, how do we know angels help in healing? We've got one scriptural example. Now, I'm, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So I'm not saying that we should build a doctrine on angels in healing. There must be a reason why there's not more told us about angels regarding healing. Yet we have modern day experiences where at least the people that are ministering healing are claiming that angels are involved. I told you about William Branham in the, in the healing revival uh, from 1947 to 1958. Um, he, was a, he was a backwoods guy. He, he was uh, a fellow that had, um, uh, well, he was planning to be a forest ranger for a career. And he loved the outdoors, loved to hunt, loved to fish, loved that, all that kind of stuff. But he couldn't hardly talk. I mean, he'd get around people and, and he, just, he just didn't know how to handle himself. 
And uh, his social skills were just like a second grader or less. And, and he'd start off. He'd start off ministering, and, and, and it wouldn't even make sense. I mean, he, he's shuffling around, and he was embarrassed, and just the whole thing. I mean, he's the least likely person you'd think for God to call to stand in some kind of public ministry of anybody in the, in, that you can imagine. But then all of a sudden, he said, his testimony was, and sometimes he'd say in the, in, the, in the service, he'd say, okay, the angel's here. And it would transform him. There would be an angel that would come and stand on the platform next to him, and it would transform him. He said the angel is the one that helped bring the revelation that God wanted him to have. The angel was the one that helped minister the healing. Now, nobody, there were, well, I said nobody. There were a couple of occasions where people saw the angel, but mostly it was this guy just saying the angel is here. And as soon as the angel was gone, this guy would revert back to, to Jed Clampett, you know. I mean, you can't put this on. The people that knew him knew that it was real. Well, he credited the angel as having some part of his ministry. Now, I say credited the angel. All I mean by that is he recognized that the angel had a part in the ministry that God had given him, uh, to, you know, to operate in. So, again, we've got examples testimonies that we can give about things like this, but we don't have any real scriptural um, proof in a multitude of scriptures. Now, why is that? I ask why not just as much as I ask why. For example, if, if this is the way God operates on occasion, then why don't we have more examples of it in scripture? It's got to be a reason. I mean, what, when the book was finished, the Holy Ghost said, oh, man, I forgot to put more angel stuff in there. That's not the way it works. There's got to be a reason why there's not more than there is. There's got to be a reason why there is what there is and why there's not what it, what's not there. Well, why? I can only come up with one supposition, and it's just a guess. But if the Bible talked more about angels than it does, I mean, look at the weird ideas people have about angels now. If there was more attention given to angels as far as the work of God is concerned, I don't have any doubt that people would start worshiping angels. Look at the, the weird stuff that has happened in the world because of people saying that they've seen angels. Mormonism started because somebody saw an angel. Islam started because somebody saw an angel or claimed to. See, the angel is kind of, or an angel, is kind of the sign of credibility that something supernatural has taken place. Paul talked about it. Paul talked about that in his day there were people that were uh, voluntarily worshiping angels. Well, he guard, uh, he warned people against that. He commanded them not to get caught up in that kind of stuff. I don't have any doubt in my mind that if there was more information about angels and specific information about how God uses them to minister, that people would start looking for angels. Uh, that brings us to another question. I'm not sure where it is in here, but... Uh, uh, let me see. Oh, here it is. Uh, it says, I know not to praise or worship the angels, but is it, is it appropriate to thank them for what they do? Thanking people is a normal thing to do, and I would assume it to be the same uh, for angels. Turn back with me to, uh, to Luke chapter 17. I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. And again, this is my thinking. Number one, we do not have any record whatsoever of anybody thanking angels. We don't see Jesus thanking the angels for whatever they're doing in his ministry. 
The times where we see people falling down to worship angels, the angels say, stop, don't do that. Other times we see people that are just simply trying to ascertain somebody's name, one of the angels' names, and they rebuke them and say, why is my name important? So it's, it's, as, it's as if the angels are stepping back saying, you don't need to know anything about me. Now, the Bible says that they're ministering servants, right? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering servants? Spirit servants, one other translation says. Look in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse, uh, well, let's see. Well, I better get this in context. Verse 1, then said he unto his disciples, this is Jesus speaking, it's impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast in the sea than, uh, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So he's talking about forgiveness, right? And the apostles said unto him, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they're saying, Lord, if we're going to have to forgive somebody seven times a day. Now, now Matthew's account says seven times 70 in a day. So whichever number you want to pick, that's still a lot for somebody doing, doing wrong to you on purpose. And that's what the disciples are, are making mention of. He says, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith. If we're going to have to forgive somebody seven times in a day, in a 24-hour period, for doing the same thing against us over and over and over again, we're going to need more faith. Now, folks, this is a, this is a great instructional tool here. Number one, forgiveness is by faith, not by feeling. They knew that. They said, you're going to have to increase our faith if we're going to be able to forgive like that. And Jesus said, here's the real point. Jesus said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say, literally, that's the word would. You would say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted into the sea and it should obey you. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he's come from the field, go and sit down to eat and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup. And gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward then you shall eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about the angels. He's talking about faith being your servant. He's saying if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'd use it like a servant. You wouldn't magnify your faith. You'd put it to work for you. But the principle is, do you thank your servant for doing what he's expected to do? Now, folks, you can thank God for the privilege of living by faith. But how many times do you thank God for your faith? Faith is something you develop by hearing the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. There's a lot of times where I've said, oh, Lord, what a privilege it is to live by faith. I'm thanking God for the principle of faith. I'm not thanking my faith. And then when things happen as a result of believing in my heart and confessing with my mouth, I don't turn around and say, oh, thank you, faith. I say, no, thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Right? You can't put in any context, any, any legitimate or scriptural context, anybody thanking their faith for bringing about the results that you're looking for or you're believing for because of this principle. You don't thank the servant for doing what it's expected to do. That seems to be the same with, with angels. They are servants. They're ministering spirits, serving spirit servants that are sent forth to minister for you. You don't thank the angels. I don't see any scriptural reference or, or uh, 
Bible evidence to ever thank the angel for what he's doing. You can thank God for what he does for you, whether he chooses to use an angel or not. But I don't see any scriptural evidence for thanking angels for what they do. I don't think angels are supposed to be that much on our um, priority list, if you know what I mean by that. Now, let me answer the next question, and maybe it will make that more clear. How do we send the angels to do an assignment after we have spoken the word in faith? Do we speak the word, then order the angel to do the task, or just speak the word in faith and they respond automatically? Uh, The answer is yes. There are examples that we have in the Scripture about all three. Daniel chapter 10 tells about when Daniel went on this uh, uh, 21-day fast. Actually, he just went on a fast. After the 21st day, the angel shows up and says, Fear not, Daniel, for I am sent to give you the answer that you seek. He said, I was sent from the throne room of God the first day that you set yourself to seek the Lord, and I am come for your words. Well, he's not praying for an angel. He's asking God to show him when Israel will be set free and delivered from the bondage of, uh, uh, well, I guess at that time it was uh, Babylon. So he's just praying about the answer. Lord, show me when this would happen. Jeremiah prophesied that it would be a certain time. When is it going to be? The time is almost up that Jeremiah spoke of. When are we going to be set free? And the angel shows up. He was sent from heaven from the first day because of his words. In other words, in answer to his prayer. But he's not praying for an angel. He's praying for for enlightenment. Now, also in line with that, we have Ezekiel's uh, explanation of the, the events that happened against the Assyrians. It says that uh, Hezekiah was king of Israel and uh, Sennacherib was the, the king of, uh, I'm sorry, did I say that right? Hezekiah is the king of Israel and Sennacherib is the king of Syria. And he starts making all kinds of threats and all kinds of uh, uh, taunts against Israel. Your God's not going to save you. Uh, the gods of other nations didn't save them. We can wipe you out. You need to just surrender. Well, Hezekiah and Isaiah began to pray. And God speaks, and the word of the Lord comes and says, Don't be afraid of Sennacherib, because he won't set foot in this city. I'll turn him back. Then then it says, And God sent his angel and slaughtered 175,000 of the Assyrians in one night. Well, why did God send the angel? Did they ask for the angel? Did they commission the angel? No, they're seeking direction from God. What do we do? And the word of the Lord came, and the angel went forth as a result of God's spoken word. But on the other hand, we've got in the example in Genesis chapter 24 where the servant is going out to find a, a wife for Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Abraham says that the angel will go forward, go in front of him, and he'll prepare the way. Well, how did Abraham know that? He didn't have any scripture. He didn't have any promise from God that we have record of where God said, any time you need help, you just send the angel out. How did he know? He knew that as a result of his covenant with God. Well, you've got the same covenant with God that he's got, only fulfilled. Don't you? The Bible says that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. It goes further in verse 29. It says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, what promise? The promise he made to Abraham. So in other words, Jesus fulfilled the promise or the covenant that God made with Abraham. That means you have Abraham's covenant fulfilled, finished. Abraham had the, had a covenant with promise. You don't have a covenant with promise. You've got a covenant fulfilled. 
You've got it better than Abraham had. And because of Abraham's relationship with God, he knew heaven will move. Whatever I need from heaven, heaven will provide for me because of my covenant relationship. So he, he doesn't hesitate. And remember, it's an answer to the, to the servant saying, well, should I take Isaac with me? He said, don't even think about taking Isaac with you. The angel will go before you. Oh, okay. Servant buys into that because when he gets to where he's going and starts talking to Rebecca's father, he says, my master's angel went before me and he made the way and he brought me here and he brought me to this house. And he set everything up and boy, it's working just like it. my master said that it would. I told you how that, um, and again, this is personal testimony and I don't want you to, to build a doctrine on t- personal testimony, mine or anybody else's. But I told you about how that uh, the Lord told Brother Hagen about praying for finances. He gave him three steps. He said, number one, quit praying about money. The money you need is here on the earth. It's not in heaven. You're praying like I'm going to send money down from heaven. If I did that, first of all, I don't have any money in heaven. If I did that, it'd be counterfeit. So he said, quit praying about money. Here's how you get your money. Here's how you get the money that you need to meet your needs. Number one, he says, claim the money that you need. In Brother Hagin's case, it was $150 a week at that time. He said, claim that $150 a week. Step number two, he said, take, tell Satan to take his hands off your money. See, once you claim it, it's yours. Tell Satan to take his hands off your money. And step number three, he said, send the ministering spirits out to go get it. Brother Hagin said, do what? And the Lord answered him. He said, haven't you ever read over in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that, uh, that they, the angels, are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? And Brother Hagin said, I always thought that said to those. He said, no, it says for those. In other words, they're your servants. So when you need something here on the earth, send them out to get it. Well, that sounds pretty good. Brother Hagin said the first time he did it, there was his, his voice was quivering. First time he claimed $150 for that week, he said his voice was quivering. He said, but it worked, and it continued to work, and it never failed to work. So he had just say, I claim $150 a week in Jesus' name. $150 for this week. Satan, take your hands off my money. Go ministering spirits and cause the money to come. People claim to do all kinds of things because they're influenced by the devil. Poor old God. I guess he can't have any influence on anybody down here. I guess demons can influence people to do evil things, but angels can't influence people to do good and right things. Well, of course they can't. Now, can you take that to extreme? Yeah, I think so. I think some people get angel happy. Angels go do this. Angels go do that. They forget so many things that they say. That How do they know what the angels are supposed to be doing? But there are times when you can put them to work. But there are other times I think they just happen because you either confess the word or an answer to your prayer. So I don't think there is one set way that it always works. But thank God the angels are here to help us when we need them. Amen. Okay, another question. Let's see, did I get all those? Got one? Another question is, do we have our own individual angel? Thank you, sir. Yeah, the Bible says that uh, um, the angels of the little, the angels of children beheld, constantly behold their father's face. Brother Hagin uh, told this um, uh, about uh, another time where the Lord appeared to him. And, and forgive me if I use his examples, but they fit. They're scriptural. Um, whether you accept or not, it's up to you. But he said that the Lord spoke to him one time about the angels and uh, he, that um, uh, an angel appeared with the Lord uh, one time when Brother Hagin had a vision. 
And every time Brother Hagin would look at this angel, he'd open his mouth like he was going to say something. He'd turn away and look back to Jesus real quick. And finally, he asked Jesus, he said, who is that big fellow? And the Lord told him, he said, that's your angel. He said, I've got an angel. He said, yeah, don't you know that the Bible says, and he quoted from Matthew, uh, the, uh, the children's angels always behold their father's face. And the Lord said, you don't lose your angel just because you grow up. Well, that seems so simple. But why would you? I mean, I can't give you any scriptural evidence, any scriptural proof. I, I can testify that that's what Brother Hagin claimed that the Lord told him in a vision. I'm not trying to get you to believe in Brother Hagin's visions or anybody else's visions. But why would you lose your angel? Do God only care about you when you're a child? Does he only want to protect you when you're young? Well, if so, then we've got to rewrite some scripture. We've got some pages to tear out of the Bible. Why would God care less about you now, whatever your age is, whatever you're doing, than he would when you were a child? And besides that, if you did lose your angel, what did he go do? If he was commissioned to take care of, to protect you and bring you into the blessings of God, what's he being commissioned to do now instead? Folks, that's not like God. God doesn't change. God wouldn't give you something for a while and take it away. So, yeah, we all have our individual angels. I've told you about seeing the angel of the church. The reason that I've seen the angel of the church is because he's my angel and I'm called to pastor this church. He is a great big old fellow. Great big fellow. We don't have anything to worry about. Now, I'm not worried one little bit about somebody charging the platform. That big fellow standing off to my side all the time. Well, you've got one too. I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at how many times our angels stepped in to help us, to protect us or do whatever, and we never knew that it was taking place. Okay, let's see. Here's a good question. It says, when the heavens speak to you, who is it? Jesus, God, or an angel? Well, I'm not sure what you mean when the heavens speak to me. And I, I assume that you, it means generally. The Bible says that, uh, that each one of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Ghost, all have separate and distinct uh, boundaries of work. The Bible tells us very specifically that Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. God is the planner. God's the one that said, let us make man in our image. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one that carried out the plan of God. Jesus is the one that created everything here on the earth. God's the one that said, this is the plan. But Jesus is the one that spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. He's the one that said, let the firmament divide from the above and below and all that kind of stuff. He's the one that made the earth. And we know that he made it with his words. We know that Jesus is the one that speaks to mankind. He's the one that delivers the word of God. He delivers the word of the Father, but he is the deliverer of that word. And Jesus said that the work of the Holy Ghost was manifold. Number one, he will show you things to come. He'll bring all things to your remembrance, what Jesus has said. And so there'll be times where Jesus will speak to you as your Savior. And there are other times where the Holy Spirit will speak to you to remind you of what Jesus said or remind you of what the word says. I don't really get too bothered about who's talking. If I recognize that it's from God, it's always going to be 
God's word originated. He's the originator. Jesus is the deliverer and the Holy Ghost is the reminder. So it doesn't really matter too much to me. Now, there are some times where I've known. There are some times where it comes in an authoritative way. There are some things that, uh, that Jesus speaks to me specifically about the church. Because he's the head of the church. The Holy Ghost is not the head of the church. It may not be distinct to us, but each of the three have very specific roles to play in God's plan. I, I know that some people get, get all bound up about, uh, and there used to be some teaching uh, 20-some years ago, maybe not 20, 15 or so years ago, about praying, praying to the Father or praying to Jesus. Who do you pray for? And people get all tangled up and say, Father, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, well, somebody up there, hear my prayer, you know, kind of stuff. Well, that that kind of thing is pretty well defined by the Bible. You pray to the Father in Jesus' name. But where it comes to the church, I speak to Jesus about the church because he's the one that built it. So there are some things about the church that I talk directly to the Lord about because he's responsible for building rather than pray to the Father in his name. But in, in most cases, those things are splitting hairs. If I'm hearing from heaven that I'm hearing the word of God, I always direct my thanks to the Father. Amen? If I've ever heard from an angel, I've been very conscious of the fact that it was an angel. I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. I think if you're hearing from an angel, you're going to know. Now, that could come in a variety of ways, but you would have to, in my opinion, you'd have to, have to know. As I said earlier in the, in the service, there's a lot of things, a lot of misnomers that people have about angels and stuff like that. I know one of the things that I used to hear in the Baptist church is when a, a child would die, they'd say God needed another angel in heaven. And so people, a lot of times people have the idea that when, when you die here on the earth, you go to heaven and you turn into an angel. Well, folks, that would be a demotion. You're made higher than the angels. Paul said to depart and be with Christ is far better. I can't see how a demotion would be better. Can you? Now, angels are created beings. You're born again. You're a new creation. So some of those things are just religious ideas that people have come up with and, and have kind of hung on uh, without, um, without people really thinking about what, uh, what the Bible says. Okay, two more questions. We'll try to get through these real quick. Okay, are those angels who sinned and rebelled against God, will they ever be forgiven if they ask for forgiveness? Nope. The Bible says they're reserved in chains and the darkness till the end. Those are the ones that you're going to judge. There's no forgiveness for them. There's no redeemer for them. Who would be their redeemer? They saw Jesus with their eyes. They heard the plan of God. They knew what God's uh, original plan was. It was declared in heaven before the foundations of the world. Since they had uh, knowledge and operated with their eyes open, who would be their redeemer? And folks, when you get talking about angels and sometimes people uh, put aliens in there and all that kind of stuff, life on other planets and stuff, if there is life on other planets, who's their redeemer? If there is existence out there, it's either under the class of man, which means they're not going to be more advanced than traveling around in spaceships, or they would need a redeemer. Who's their redeemer? Jesus came to the earth. Does God have more sons that went to other other worlds? 
Of course not. The Bible says God created the universe for man. Not he created the universe for all the life that's out there. Now, I know it's a popular thing to say, and it's it's kind of a, uh, well, in, in, in one sense, it kind of feels cool to say, for God to make the whole universe, there's got to be something else out there. Well, no, he made the whole universe for you. He made the whole universe for the greatest of his creations, and that was man. So, no, there, there would be no redemption for them because there is no redeemer. Last question. We have access to angels in our lives, but what about others? When natural disasters hit, can we believe for angels to aid the people, uh, firefighters, etc.? Or when an ambulance rushes by, can I commission my angels to help them? Um, you know, that gets into the area of authority. Um, where's, where are the boundaries of your authority? Where it comes to your loved ones, you can uh, exercise your authority for their protection. And I have no doubt that the angels are involved in that, whether you ever commission the angels or not. If you've got young children, children that are not uh, not grown, not uh, mature and, and own their own, uh, certainly you have authority over their lives and, and uh, uh, to the degree that you can pray the blessings of God and the protection of God upon them and things like that. But when it comes to other things, I mean, unless God gives you something, I don't have authority over somebody else out there that I don't know. I don't have authority for the angels to uh, uh, to stop a tornado from destroying a city, for example. Now, the Christians in that city do, because if God has placed them there, they have authority to, to uh, or, or they're in a position to take authority to protect their own homes and, and things like that. Um, but if God gave that kind of authority to you or me or Christianity in general, then we could just control the world, couldn't we? I mean, why couldn't we just take authority over everybody to make them vote the right way? It's an honest question. If we could take authority and, and commission angels to do whatever we want to, whenever we want to do it, there's a lot of things that we could take authority over that would nullify the need to preach the gospel. Why not just take authority over everybody and make them get saved? Let's just send our angels out and make everybody get saved tonight. Well, that's not the way it works. So it comes down to the issue of authority. God's given you authority over your life, and he's commissioned the angels to operate on your behalf to bring you into the blessings of God in your own life. Our job is to tell the world about what belongs to them in Christ so that they can exercise the same authority that you and I do. Amen? Thank God for the angels. Praise the Lord. Well, that's all the questions that we had come in. So I hope that was, hope you got something out of it at least. Let's all stand together. And let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name, for the great blessings that you've given to us, for the wondrous things that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to see who we are in Christ and what belongs to us and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Thank you, Father. For the ministering servants, the spirit servants that you've given to help us, to aid us, to protect us, and bring us into the fullness of your blessings. Hallelujah. Father, we bless your name. Angels, we give you free reign and course in this church. 
to carry out the will and the plan and the purpose of God. We give you free reign in course in our lives. And as we speak the word of God, thank you, Father, that those angels go to bring it to pass in our, in our lives and to change circumstances as necessary to bring about healing, to bring finances, to bring the word and the will of God to pass for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.